Thanks to Cryo Malt. This week on Beer is a Conversation, we meet Bill Savage from Goose Island. As with many craft brewers, Bill has had an interesting path into his present career. Bill came to brewing having taught himself to make mead while studying classical language and literature at college. He then went on to make wine and mead professionally before joining Goose Island in 2013. He is now lead brewer in the Goose Island Barrel Aging Program. This conversation coincides with the launch of Goose Island's Sour Sisters range in Australia, and I speak with Bill about Goose Island's barrel program, the growing popularity of barrel-aged beers, and the challenges of scaling up esoteric beer production to meet a global demand. Enjoy the conversation. Savage, welcome to Beer is a Conversation. Yeah, thanks for having me. Appreciate it. We met uh, two years ago. You were down for uh, Good Beer Week, um, and I, I, you brought a couple of bottles of the Sour Sisters range, um, which is what we're really talking about today. Um, and we're just about to see them land properly in Australia. But I, I think before we start talking about your beers, let's talk a little bit about uh, Bill Savage. And you've uh, got an interesting route into Goose Island. Yeah, yeah. Um bit of a circuitous route, I suppose, but, um, yeah, I started out just kind of as an enthusiast home brewer. I started out, um, in college kind of doing some mead making, which honey wine, um, and then started working for a really small winery in Chicago called Wild Blossom. And they do specialize in meads and also did some contract, uh, wine making for a couple of, uh, hotels and whatnot. So I started kind of really in the wine side of things. Um, I apprenticed there for uh, about a year, so not too long. I knew that uh, brewing beer was kind of going to be, you know, a stronger calling. Um, I just think it's way more interesting just as a beverage. But, uh, you know, the winemaking side definitely taught me a few things uh, and certainly a bit about barrel aging. So from there, yeah, uh, while I was making wines and meads with them i started taking uh going to the siebel institute uh, in chicago for you know brewing education and then when i was there i started kind of dabbling and working for a smaller brewery uh just south of chicago and then uh worked there for a num- about uh, just shy of two years did a little bit of uh work there with uh bourbon barrel aging I uh, started getting into sours a little bit there, but just kind of experimentally, and then started working for Goose Island back in 2013, uh, just as a sellerman. Did that for a couple years, just kind of fell in love with all the things that we do as a company, everything from, uh, you know, our non-barrel aged pale ales and, and uh, honkers is near and dear to my heart, but... Uh, you know, there's just a number of beers that Goose Island does that are, uh, you know, a bit bit odd, but also very rooted in tradition. So I've kind of seen almost every side of it. And then once I was done with cellaring, I uh, moved up to the brew house for about a year. So 
got to touch pretty much every recipe there on our hot side, and now I'm in charge of our barrel aging program. So yeah, it's it's been a been a fun ride. <laughs> it's been an amazing journey. But just going back to to when you said that you started getting into mead uh, when you were at college, yeah. You know, I, I, a lot of my friends got into home brewing because it's a cheap way to get beer, and uh, it was pretty much about making alcohol as opposed to making anything with flavour. Yeah. What was it about uh, you or your personality or your interests that led you to start out making mead, which is a, a, a you know a, quite an interesting and flavoursome uh, drink for a college student? Yeah, yeah. So that was um, so I actually studied classical language and literature uh, when I was at university. Uh, so I was kind of involved in, you know, a lot of uh, historical kind of representations uh, of of different, you know, all kinds of things. But uh, beverages were pretty interesting to me, you know, just learning about, you know, poor quality, how, how bad uh, drink must have been back then. And part of me, I think, was just drawn to me just because it's arguably one of the probably the, the oldest fermented beverage in human history. So, uh, or even pre-human history. So yeah, something about that just kind of drew me in. And then I started tinkering with it a bit more, more and more and landed up, you know, ended up working for, a, uh, an award-winning mead making company. So yeah. <laughs> it, 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 it's certainly not everyone's introduction to, to the brewing scene but I was also intrigued that you just said that uh, even though you studied winemaking um, you, you find the process of beer making a little bit more interesting and that's something that a lot of brewers down here that started out at winemaking you know, is something that they say as well what is it about beer that makes the, the, the beer making process uh, so interesting? I think it partially depends on your approach but you know, for me and what I was taught, uh, most wineries really kind of focus on, it's kind of just up to chance, right? Um, you can do so much as a vintner or as a um, grape grower to kind of make sure that your your harvest is going to end up hopefully in the place where you want it to. But uh, really, it's it's purely an agricultural product. So luck and chance can really thwart or alter what you what you want to be doing uh pretty drastically so uh and that goes for honey as well you know i mean i'm sure plenty of other pe- smarter people will talk about the blight of you know the honeybee but um <laughs> there's just a lot of problems in the world and uh with climate change and everything there's there's definitely going to be some uh some negative impact on on mead making uh you know cost of honey is going you know skyrocketing uh and it should be really a pretty cheap and easy uh sugar source so um but getting back to brewing uh i would say you know just the amount of control that you have over processes versus the raw materials straight out of the field um is is the biggest Part. Um, you know, seeing everything from quality of the malt and type of malt that you're using um, to, you know, what you're doing at mashing and your 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 tank uh, specifications and what type of what I guess what type of 
system you're working with. There's there's just so many facets that I find very interesting, and and it's fun as a brewer to kind of see what what your capabilities are, and and also what everyone else is doing around. Because the biggest thing to me is also the the community of brewers, right? We're all pretty easygoing uh, group of folks, and and everyone loves sharing knowledge. Uh, and best practices so it's it's really the community to me and that's that's the other piece too is there are wine snobs and I've met some beer snobs but they're they're really a small minority um, you know the, the group of people who are behind craft beer and just beer culture is it's just more fun <laughs> I, I find it interesting that when you talk that way about wine and beer and having a little bit more control over the processes that you've then gone into a t- technique of beer making where you give some of that control back a little bit. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so I think there's a bit of a fine line and, and anyone who's, I think the more you do something, the more you realize you don't know. Uh, and that's kind of, uh, I guess where the artistry kind of side of things, but also the, just the practicality. There's not, um, there's no foolproof way to kind of use wooden casts the same way that you, you know, there's a reason we everybody switched to stainless steel for production. Uh, so reverting back to that kind of old school uh, way is a, I think kind of a testament to some of earlier practices that brewers, winemakers, you know, a lot of people kind of harken back to that because there is kind of a, a mixture of both known and unknown variables that uh, keep pushing you. So every day is interesting. You know, you're never caught up in the monotony of, well, I'm only, I'm going to brew some more IPA today, you know, and as much as everybody loves IPAs or, or uh, a lager, you know, on a hot day, if, if you fine tuned your processes enough to where you almost don't have to look at anything then that takes some of the fun out of the day <laughs> we, we might check just that uh philosophical uh idea of barrel aging and come back to that because we might even just talk a little bit about the sour sisters range that has just launched in australia and uh there's a selection of four that uh we're seeing lolita halia madame rose and jillian um, maybe you can tell us a little bit about the goose island um, sour range and uh, what they are, and then we can come back and talk a little bit about uh, some of the you know, reasons that sours are becoming uh, so popular. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, like you said, the range uh, for our sour program, I would say anything from, I would start with Halia uh, only because it's kind of the lightest, it's the most, probably the most mild and, um, you know, I guess delicate. Uh, of of the four. So Halia is made with um, about 50 pounds per cask. So uh, I think I had a sheet with me that had the calculator for kilograms but, uh, <laughs> per liter, but gallons is 59 gallons for a um, Bordeaux cask and uh, 50 pounds of fruit. But um, So it's about 20 kilos to 220 odd liters 228 i think something like that that sounds right yep so quite a bit um you know it takes up quite a bit of space 
and really what we're doing is um you know letting the peach flavor really kind of come through and shine it's not a very robust uh fruit you know it's it's pretty light and delicate um you know most a lot of like white wines kind of um we'll say in their kind of flavor descriptor you know or in the aroma descriptor that there's a lot of kind of peach skin character or something like that so we take a similar approach with this one um so it's a saison base uh and then base beer and then we add 50 pounds peaches and uh we inoculate with uh Britannomyces clausenii so it's um that particular strain of Britannomyces uh is plays very well with kind of lighter delicate uh almost pineapple kind of characteristics uh and lets a little bit of the kind of oak character from uh, some of the white wine casks that we use uh, shine through. So it's a, I don't know, I, I would classify it as probably the most uh, drinkable or uh, approachable of our sours. It's, it's got a mild um, tartness, partly from the peach, but mostly uh, from the wild microflora that are on the, the fruit that we get in. Uh, for this beer yeah so then i would say our next uh in line would probably be uh lolita we've been making lolita for quite some time now i think since uh either 2010 or 2011 um but that base beer is kind of a belgian pale ale to start um in our main production uh brewery and then we take that beer age it in a mixture of red and red and white wine uh, casks. And then we add basically uh, our take on a frambois, if you're familiar with uh, Belgian or Lambic, you know, beers. But oh, yeah. yep. it's, it's basically a raspberry um, sour. So it's, it's still pretty approachable. It's right around uh, 7% alcohol. Um, has kind of a ruby uh hue to it it's really just um smells like fresh raspberries maybe a touch of kind of uh oakiness or or vanilla and it's i don't know it's one of my favorites it's uh really crisp uh very refreshing just like biting into a raspberry would be you know it's it's just got a lot of kind of light fruity notes but it's not delicate it's definitely tart you know you're drinking a sour when you have it but it's not so tart that it's gonna overwhelm your palate i don't i don't think but i've been drinking sours for a long time so <laughs> so what's the uh, sour equivalent of lupulin shift that they describe with ipas yeah yeah right yeah uh we should come up with one but... <laughs> <laughs> that's lolita and where do, where do you go from there where's the next step up so next, I would go uh, Jillian, just because it's um, the, the same base beer actually is in Halia to start, but Jillian becomes very different in that we use uh, about, let me think, about 20-some pounds of uh, honey that we add to the cask. Uh, we also add fresh strawberries, and we add white pepper as well. So uh, this is definitely more of kind of your kind of a foodie um, 
foodies kind of beer, so like uh, or a restaurateur's kind of beer. Um, it's very complex for how light it is. I think it ends up coming in right around 9% alcohol, so it, the alcohol percentage is definitely closer to kind of a wine. It's aged in ex-white wine casks. We add uh, Britannomyces to this as well uh, for kind of some uh, barnyard uh, or I don't think we get quite horse blanket character from it, but it's definitely a bit tart. Um, it's not quite as sour as Lolita, but it has a lot more complexity to it. It has a lot more, uh, you know, white pepper uh, notes in it, kind of also kind of skew um, your palate to kind of more of the oak. It, it highlights some of the oak characteristics that are in there. Um, it's just amazing, and uh, if anyone has a chance, you should definitely give it a go. <laughs> I've uh, had four bottles delivered. I, I, they only turned up late last night, and it was a little bit early this morning to t- tuck into some of these complex beers, but I'm looking forward <laughs> to it. Yeah, yeah, I'd best enjoyed with food. Um, I would highly recommend having it with some salmon uh, and kind of a lighter uh, dish, but it's it just cuts through and, and shines kind of no matter what. So can't go wrong. Um, and then that brings us lastly to uh, Madame Rose, which is kind of probably the most sour and most complex. Uh, it has some of the least amount of ingredients added, but, uh, well, we, we do quite a cocktail of microflora additions. So, um, Starting out, this is kind of um, kind of just a brown ale, um, and then we take some red wine uh, barrels. We take 50 pounds of uh, fresh cherries from Michigan, and then we basically just blend it in. Uh, but we also add two different strains of Britannomyces, some Lactobacilli and Pediococcus. So. Um, this gets a little bit more development over time. This also sits uh, on the fruit and in the cask for a year and a half, so quite a bit more aging time, and that really allows uh, the lactobacilli to kind of shine and kind of take over. That's why this one ends up being quite a bit more sour. But, you know, we we like that. So <laughs> <laughs> this is a, a rich kind of cherry flavor bomb. <laughs> and what would you pair with that? That sounds like something that would go beautifully with duck or like a, a, a nice roast duck or an Asian duck. Yeah, it'd go great with, uh, you know, some picking duck or, uh, you know, I've had it with typical American, but we have something called triple chocolate cake. Yep. Super dense. It's got like crazy amounts of fudge, but uh, yeah, and it just cuts right through the kind of fat and uh, intensity from the chocolate, um, and it pairs really beautifully. So Together, they sound like they're very Belgian-inspired. You know, there's some classic, there's a peche, there's a creek, there's a framboise, um, and I'm not sure what the strawberry equivalent is in uh, Belgium, but how close are, you know, how close are these to being Belgian, and or are they Belgian-inspired with a Goose Island twist? So these are Belgian, definitely Belgian-inspired. I think if you talk to any anyone from Belgium, they would tell you the exact same. <laughs> uh, 
you know, we, we put our twist on it and we are not by any stretch of the imagination. You know, we don't live on a farm. We're in industrial Chicago. So, um, you know, luckily we have access to really great fresh fruit uh, around us, especially in Michigan uh, and some places even further in Illinois, uh, in the U.S. So we take advantage of that uh, and do kind of an homage to traditional uh, Belgian Arabic brewers and blenders. But um, it's definitely a different process. But, you know, we we've always drawn inspiration from, uh, you know, really traditional sources. So this is just kind of one of those iterations. And, and tell us about the wood you're using. Uh, they're, they're all sourced in uh, or aged in wine barrels? Yes, all of them. Yep. So for sourcing oak, uh, we do quite a big blend. So a big part of this is really um, the number of years we've been doing these sour projects. Uh, all of the microflora uh, and using wood, um, you know, basically you're building up a whole slew of different microorganisms year after year after year. And some of that is really, um, you know, the fruit itself plays a role. So uh, every year is a little different. Um, you know, that's why we tax the, the date that we package it um, on the bottle. Uh, so we have those year-to-year differences, but um, a lot of that really comes from not just the fruit, but the casks that we use. So over time, uh, every cask is going to kind of have a different level of different types of microorganisms that remain from the previous batch. Uh, and we've added on over the years, but we've also taken away. So we're kind of almost like being i don't know a shepherd i guess in some some sense um you know we're, we're kind of picking out our favorites from the flock and letting them go on and uh you know keep on thriving and breeding and so on but we're also you know some of them are being troublesome <laughs> we'll take them out to pasture and, <laughs> and get rid of them. How hard is it to scale this style of barrel aging program? How hard is it to source the barrels? How hard is it to sort of keep an eye on the, the beer and keep the, the consistency that a larger brewery needs, but also keep that nuance and the um, you know, interest in, in each of the beers? I'm not sure I can answer that in any one way. Um, you know, interestingly, I would say scaling up is difficult, um, but at the same time, uh, I would also say for anyone who says, you know, the, the beer is going to change, well, that's the nature of brewing this type of beer style to begin with. Um, you know, we were not known for uh, brewing this type of style really consistently. We always see some variation some of that has to do with um you know temperature uh you know just the temperature of ambient temp that's in our warehouses some of that has to do with you know the fruit that's growing the previous year um you know growing conditions things like that there's all kinds of factors that that can cause and do cause uh fluctuation from year to year but scaling up um you know there there are definite challenges uh, and sourcing quality oak is not difficult. Uh, 
at least in the United States, we have um, some really spectacular wineries out in California, Washington, Oregon. And, you know, we take full advantage of that um, because a barrel that, you know, might be, might have Britannomyces as a contamination for a winery is perfectly fine for us. So we'll (laughs) happily take that off your hands and and use it to our, our benefit. I guess as the barrel master, you must have an incredible challenge you know, if you're a small little uh, brewery that's maybe got a barrel program of 12 or even 24 uh, casks where you can sample each and have an idea of the blending because each one's unique, um, mm-hmm. you're responsible for how many casks in, in, in each vintage of uh, the, the Sour Sisters range? Oh, that changes every year, but uh, last count, I think, for each type was right around 500 wow right around 500 and and, and how do you keep maybe track? just shy yeah i mean like i i can't remember my children's names sometimes <laughs> and uh how do you keep track of 500 barrels and, and and know how each one's developing and how various uh you know barrels will play with uh the, you know the, the blending of, of other barrels i guess my approach has been i, I won't speak for anybody else um a lot of it has to do with kind of just knowing and trusting your processes. Um, you know, we do random testing pretty much every three months. So I'll get a good idea of where everything's at. You know, we're, we're dealing with several batches, obviously, right? So uh, I'll take a look at each specific batch, um, kind of track those over time, and then have a general idea. But really, once it comes time to... Uh, getting close to when we're planning on, um, you know, extracting the beer out of the barrels, then I'll kind of do a deeper, full check. And uh, my team of brewers really, and our lab team, you know, oddly enough, I don't miss too many or have too few people to help me sample. So uh, (laughs) it really helps out because I have people who I trust uh, no one trusts to kind of help me find that that blend that we're going to then start pushing out and kind of make sure that it's really true to character. But we do still see some slight variation, uh, even batch to batch. So it's not real significant. I don't know that anyone like a, a consumer out there would be like, oh, this this was clearly run number 7,000 versus... 7001 you know um and that that is a job i take seriously but yeah we've just been really lucky and and uh been doing it for a little while so we've you know learned from our mistakes and and uh hopefully keep minimizing them we've seen a real rise in the interest in sour beers uh over the last three or four years whereas hops arguably really kick-started this idea of craft beer people now starting to shift and look at some of the kettle sours and some of the more traditional sours such as the the sour sisters range what is it do you think that's driving that interest oh that's a really good question um i'm not sure i can answer that coming from any sort of place of knowledge uh i think it's speculative at best and i would say you know the the whole movement of craft uh, beer globally has really just shifted people's 
interactions with with deer in general and made them re rethink that relationship a little bit you know yeah it's still uh something to just enjoy and hopefully you like it right craft kind of may is making people more aware of where beer comes from um hopefully you get to know the brewer down the street uh and have a little bit of a you know interaction with them beyond just hey thanks for the beer uh you know, much appreciated, you'll hopefully be able to kind of be like, hey, this is like an actual art and uh, science and interesting like hobby slash uh, way of looking at the world. So I think people are approaching beer in different ways uh, nowadays. So they're just kind of expanding their horizons. They're, They're figuring out what they like and what they don't. And sour beer, I think, is scary to some but intriguing at the same time. So uh, hopefully the more people who get to know it, get to know some really good ones, which I hope ours are, but if they're not, please, please shoot me a line. <laughs> <laughs> One of the things that fascinates me about the sours is, you know, if you go back to the early days of craft, we, we had the hoppy beers, as I mentioned, but then there was also a lot of breweries were focusing on some of the traditional styles, like a German Hefeweizen, um, and and even saisons to some extent, and most of the Australian breweries particularly launched with a, a Hefeweizen in some form, but they never really gained traction, and they've been overtaken by beers like a, an American Pale Ale or an India Pale Ale, um, and, and now we've seen the, the the rise of sours. And I just sort of wonder. I had somebody explain to me that. One of the reasons that hops uh, have driven the craft beer revival is that they're easy for everybody to get. When you try a hoppy beer, you know that you're trying something that is different to what went before. Mm-hmm. But there's a certain subtlety to a beer like a Hefeweizen and even a, 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 a Saison that reminds people of fermentation in a way that's not always good. And it's almost uh, when, when you t- move from a plastic wrapped cheese slice to a, a brie or a camembert <laughs> and you start getting that white mold that you've always been told isn't good on food and it almost takes a process right. of you know understanding whereas a sour beer is so obviously meant to be that way that it, 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 it's almost easier to 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 get uh, much the same way as very hoppy beers are did you have any thoughts on that observation yeah, I think there might be some truth to that. Um, you know, on the plus side, calling something a sour, um, I think is a pretty good indicator of what it's going to be. Um, although I will say anecdotally, we have had, I have seen a complaint about our sour beers being sour <laughs> as, a, as a negative, which I found very humorous. But um, no, I think there is some truth to that. And Luckily, we also have the blessing that calling something either, um, you know, a kettle sour or um, Belgium-inspired traditional sour uh, or fruited sour or something like that, um, you know, it's not called Hefeweizen. It's not in a different language. It's, um, you know, even though I think a lot of beer consumers know exactly what a Hefeweizen is or should be, there's different iterations like crystal bison and uh you know yada yada so i think knowing what you are about to drink and not necessarily associating you know typically people like 
fruits, you know. Um, there are sweet and kind of tart characteristics with most fruits, so it keeps you kind of wanting some more, right, as opposed to, uh, you know, banana or bubble gum, which are not necessarily people's favorite flavors. Mm-hmm. Um, I happen to love clove. That is not everybody's favorite flavor when they're sipping on a beer. So, yeah, I think there's definitely some truth to that for sure. Oh, terrific. Well, Bill, I know it's getting uh, it, it's getting well into the evening over there in uh, Chicago. So, uh, and, and I've already taken, we've chatted much longer than I'd said that we were going to. So, uh, Bill Savage, <laughs> th- thank you very much for joining me on uh, uh, and having this conversation uh, about the Sour Sisters uh, beers. I'm very much looking forward to trying them. And uh, now I'll make sure that in the show notes we have some details uh, from your team at this end about where people can track them down and try them, them try them for themselves. Um, now, are, are we going to see you down under again at any time soon that you know of? Not that I know of. Uh, I did just have a, a son. He's uh, eight months old now, uh, doing great. So, yeah, just keeping an eye on him. He's starting to crawl and trying to walk and all that. So I'm probably going to be sticking it out here for a little bit until he can move and uh start thinking a little bit more for myself but hopefully i would love to make it back down there i'll I'll savor that time i went to my uh, eldest daughter's formal last night, which is their graduation dinner um, down here. So uh, I, I, yeah. I remember those days. Enjoy it. Um, it, it. It's some of the best times in your life. Yeah, we'll continue to appreciate it. <laughs> well, Bill, thank you very much for your time, and uh, hopefully we will get to uh, have another beer uh, very soon. I hope so. All right, cheers. And that was Bill Savage from Goose Island. In the interest of full disclosure, this was a sponsored podcast. We were offered the chance to speak with Bill, but we had interviewed Ken Stout and Dave Toads from Goose Island late last year, and with so much happening on the beer scene here, we initially declined the offer. But they were very keen for us to speak with Bill and offered to sponsor the episode. I did approach it as I would any interview, and in the end was pleased that I chatted with Bill. It was an interesting chat. But as always, let us know your thoughts on the interview and sponsored chats generally. We don't do it often, it doesn't change the content, but it does help keep the show running. As a sponsored chat, the concession I'll make is to let you know where you can get the beers. They are available from select Dan Murphy's and First Choice stores, and also from Boozebud, which ZX Ventures purchased last month. They retail for under $30 a bottle. What isn't sponsored though is a recommendation. I was sent a bottle of each to try, and they are well worth checking out for yourself. As you heard in the interview, I was a little sceptical that a brewery like Goose Island could scale up production to meet international demand. But the beers are certainly worth trying, especially if you like sour Belgian-styled ales. I usually don't make a glass recommendation, but I suggest you use a good, wide-mouth glass with a broad bowl, such as the stemmed Pilsner from Spiegelau, or I used a Bordeaux wine glass. That just sounds a little bit pompous, doesn't it? Make sure you let the beers warm up a few degrees from fridge temperature too. Don't forget, if you like what we do at Radio Brews News, you can help us out in a number of ways. You can sponsor the show, either by a small monthly contribution or through a one-off donation. You can find details in the show notes. You can review our podcast on iTunes or your favourite podcasting service. Let us know what you think and help others discover the show. 
Finally, you can tell us directly what you think by sending an email to producer at bruisenews.com.au. Thank you.